Uh, We continue through our sermon series in the Gospel of John. Um, This morning's sermon is entitled, The Temple Presence of Christ. Now there's a little bit of double meaning there because we're going to look at how Christ enters into the temple and is present there. And whips and tables are thrown, um, people are driven out, and Christ is present in his temple. But also that we are truly the temple presence now of Christ as he has lived and has died and has resurrected and now has ascended. We are the body of Christ. We represent him to the world. And so I want us to think about a few things as we read our scripture this morning. Does it matter how we worship? Does it matter where our worship is directed? Who we worship? Thirdly, where is Jesus right now? And lastly, does the temple still matter? So let us read from John 2, uh, 13 through 25. The words are also up on the screen. Uh, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or of commerce. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So our story, as we um, dive into the public ministry of Jesus, moves from a wedding, a feast at Cana, to a Passover feast. And the Passover was bringing people, it brought people from all over the area to Jerusalem and the temple to worship. And Jerusalem um, still is, and and even then was a large city. It was the hub of the religious and um, political and public life for the Jews. And this was a time of the Passover, so the city was bustling with even more people. All these people coming in to give their sacrifices and worship at the temple. So it would have been crowded. Knowing that Passover was the central feast in the life of God's people. In fact, it was the first feast of the year. Uh, It marked a new year for God's people. Their identity was 
their identity was knitted in with, attached to the Passover. And remembering what the Passover celebrated. Right? Of course, it celebrated um, their deliverance from slavery to the Egyptians. Their release from the oppression um, of the Egyptians. Of God's promise and faithfulness to set them free from captivity. It represented what God has done for those that put their faith and trust in him, covering their doorposts with the blood of a spotless lamb. It was at the heart of their identity as God's chosen people. So in this temple, which is the center of worship for God's people, in the place where God dwells among his people, and if we remember that um, God dwelt with his people at Eden, right, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, and then sin separated them, and God made himself known to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then we get into Egypt, and God seemed to have abandoned them. They still looked towards a savior, someone who had set them free. And God chose another prophet, Moses. And as Moses led his people, God's people, out of the promised land, he gave them direction about how to build a place. Well, first he, he showed them that he was, he was with them in a pillar of a cloud, right? And then at night he was in the pillar of fire so that they knew that God was with them. And then soon God gave them direction on how to build a tabernacle, a place where he would dwell among his people as they moved from place to place, waiting for that final location, the promised land where they would finally have a temple, a permanent place where God would dwell among his people. And here we have the temple totally built, Passover being celebrated, a place where God dwelt for the people of Israel, as well as God-fearing Gentiles who are allowed to come into the Gentile court. And yet here we have the Word of God Himself, Jesus Christ, entering into the temple as the the embodiment of God, both physical and spiritual, entering into the temple, the place that God dwells. He said, I am here, the Word of God Himself. Jesus Christ had now become the very temple presence of God. And he enters into the temple and he asks, what is going on in my father's house? As we discussed that the Passover, the central worship feast for God's people coming from all over, pilgrimages from all over the land. So you can only imagine if you're coming from a distant village, how difficult it might be to bring an oxen yourself or even a sheep or a lamb yourself. And so, rightly, they had, they had this um, market set up, which was, used to be outside the temple courts and now has found its way inside the temple courts because it was convenient, as you can imagine, so you didn't have to bring your own oxen to be sacrificed. It was a burden. Right? I mean, I think... If you're going on a long trip, it's nice to be able to stop at a rest stop. 
and just and relax for a minute, get some food there, not worrying about having to pack all your own food, although, you know, that's probably economical. You know, those rest stop prices are expensive. But it would be a major burden to travel with all your animals and all the things that you needed for, sac- for sacrificing. So what happened? Well, people from lands afar would come and they'd have to change their currency, just like if you go to another country, you have to change your U.S. dollar to something else. They would change their currency to the currency of the temple. Okay, understandable so far. But what happens is that all this commerce, all this trade, comes from the outside of the temple into the place where God dwells, into his holy house. And it became a market. A place where people would be like, okay, it's the Passover, time to make a little side hustle, make some extra money, and I'm going to come in here and sell things and rip people off. And the money changers were taking advantage. They would have a temple tax. So you wouldn't just exchange your money for a fair rate. They would tax it because they knew that you were stuck. They had you cornered. Right? Imagine yourself trying to worship making this long trek to worship for the Passover, and you hear these inside the place where you're supposed to worship animal noises, animal smells, clinking change, the hustle and bustle of people yelling, and I don't know, you know, like a Seattle fish market type of deal where people are yelling and money's falling and changing hands, and you're trying to worship. Right? It's not as if, like, sometimes we have noises in here. Right? We have our song, we're singing, we have the voice of the people confessing together. We also have children, sometimes crying children. Right? But those are things that are supposed to be outside of God's worship. They're supposed to be inside because children are part of God's covenant community. It wasn't so with this commerce and this trade. And all that's taking place in the temple, it's all man-centered and it's displacing the worship that belonged to God alone. It was about making money. It was about doing whatever you could to get yours and not to serve God's people and to worship God. Right? This was the place that represented the presence of God. It was set apart for solemnity, for rejoicing even, for reverence, for awe and the glory of God. It was a set-apart place for worship. And we hear clinking coins and mooing oxen and bleeding sheep and that weird noise that doves make and pigeons make. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Wait, it's not the place for reverence anymore. So what does Jesus do when he sees this? He gets angry. He gets zealous for the house of his father. Not a sinful anger, but an anger, a righteous anger. And he takes a whip and he drives these merchants and these animals out of the temple area. He overturns table. He pours out the coins. And he says, don't make my father's house a marketplace, a house of trade, a house of commerce. One thing I don't like about the ESV here is that there's a period when he says this. One might think there should be an exclamation point. I mean, in the Greek, it wouldn't have been an exclamation point because they didn't have exclamation points. But for us, if we understand the zeal, being zealous that Jesus has in this, um, when saying this, we would supposedly see an exclamation point. And our senses shouldn't be dulled as we read this, maybe for the, dozen, you know, the 12th time 
or hearing this for the twelfth time, or even more. But it should surprise us that Jesus feels this way about the temple of God. It's because worship matters. It's one of those questions, does how we worship matter to God, that I asked in the beginning. Yes, it does. It matters a lot. We can see it here with Jesus. Right, that God gave specific directions for how we are to worship him. How are we to honor him? Right, we are to be people who worship by the word of God. And we know that is Jesus himself. We know that Jesus is both the word of God and the temple of God. The place on earth where God dwells. Hebrews 9 um, reminds us that it does matter to God how we worship him. That God regulates how we worship him. It's not a free-for-all. Hebrews 9 says this, Now even the first covenant, right, speaking of the covenants before Jesus makes the new covenant, as he says in the Lord's Supper, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of his bloodshed for us. He says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, and man, earthly place of holiness, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and table and the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat, that God gave specific direction, not only to those of the Old Covenant, we look in the Old Testament, but he gave specific direction for us in the New Covenant as well. We are not just supposed to worship God as we see fit. We are a people of the New Covenant, and God still has regulations for how we worship him. Now, regulation is not a word that we like to hear. Okay, especially in Connecticut. There seems to be regulations for everything. I was actually just reading an article, um, if you guys are familiar with like Facebook Marketplace, where you can, it's kind of like the new Craigslist where you can buy and sell things. Well, in some areas of the country, um, and one specifically, it was this town right on the border of Mexico and Texas. And this woman, um, it was this grandma, who had been making like her Mexican food, like authentic Mexican food, like tamales and whatnot, um, and selling them on the Facebook marketplace. Unregulated by the federal government or the state government. And people loved it. And she'd been doing it for years and years, even before the Facebook marketplace. But now that she was selling food, you know, without a food vendor's license or all these things, she now has been regulated. So when we hear regulation, often we think, intrusion into our own lives. Often we think it's a burden that we have to follow these regulations. And I can see that, right? I I can definitely see that. But for God and his perfection and his beauty and his truth and his goodness, he has given us the ways in which he desires to be worshipped. And the way that we visibly see here is without a marketplace within his house of worship. So the notion that we must follow scripture 
in organizing our worship and that we are not uh, permitted to introduce practices that God has not approved of is known as the regulative principle. That a principle of worship that God regulates how we worship him. So we look in scripture and we see um, that we are supposed to pray and worship. That we are supposed to um, have the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism um, in worship. That we are to um, read the word of God in worship. That we are to have the word of God preached in worship. That we are, supposed, that we are to sing um, psalms and songs and, spirit, and hymns and spiritual songs in worship. That there are these things that God, through his word, has directed us to worship him. And this is specifically talking about how we come together as the family of God, as the church, and worship together on Sunday, mor- on Sunday morning or Sunday night or on any time on the Sabbath where we as the church come together. And so there are things in your private spiritual life that you might do that in liberty you are, are doing. Like, we're, easy example, right? That we, you might go into a closet to pray, right? To have all distraction removed from you so that you might go into that dark place and you're just thinking and praying in that dark place. But we are not going to set up all these closets in the sanctuary in order that we might pray all separately because God has not called the church to do that in worship. But he has called those things that I just mentioned. What we do in worship must be found explicitly in Scripture or deduced by good and necessary consequence from its teaching. So we must be careful in our obedience to God's Word and how we worship as a body. Right? This isn't meant to bring right, a frozen, chosen rigidity right, to how we worship, but a wonderful freedom in knowing that God is pleased with our worship because He has commanded it. And he has commanded the elements of worship, yes, but how they take form in worship is flexible. Right? So like music style. So like we're, we're blessed to have Ned and he, as he leaves us with his acoustic guitar, but that's like a relatively new instrument. Right? But we introduce that into worship because those are parts of the forms of how we sing. If you go to Africa or to Asia, different instruments are used in worship. But we are still called to sing and to sing together and corporately. So the forms in which these elements show themselves are are flexible in time and place and culture. So worship matters because the word matters. And the temple matters because Jesus Christ is the temple. So everybody knows it's impossible, right, to rebuild the temple. It took 46 years. Even with all our modern equipment, it would take far longer than three days to rebuild the temple. Right? Even um, for, uh, what was that show on TV? Um, Extreme, Extreme Home Makeover, right, where they used, to, they used to tear down a house or take a house and just basically rebuild it in a week's time. Um, Ty, was it Ty Pennington? Was that the guy's name? And... Uh, this whole crew would just come in and rebuild this house in a week. Actually, there's actually a house in Suffield that was on that show. That was, um, you can go, it's on, uh, I can't remember, Mather Street in Suffield, and you can see it. Um, we know that it's impossible. Because they're taking him at, at he's, they're taking him to mean the literal, physical temple 
that was built by their forefathers. This temple which Jesus is talking about was an architectural marvel. Right? Even, though, even the foundation, even though the foundation is all that remains of it today, right? the temple mount, they fit together and they're still standing 2,000 years later. It says, tear it down and in three days you will raise it up. But we know that John is talking, that Jesus is talking about his body. Because later the disciples will recognize after Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and, they, and they, this light bulb goes out off in the, in the minds of the disciples and says, oh, he was talking about his body. That makes total sense because he was the presence of God on this earth. No longer do we need the temple as the curtain of the, the Holy of Holies was torn down and the separation of God and man was removed and now replaced by Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And his sacrifice for us. Right? You see the days of the worship in the temple, the days of sacrifices and offerings of money changers, the days of the Passover celebrations, those things were coming to an end. And Jesus was coming in and inaugurating this new covenant, this new way of looking at God, a way that was more revealed because God now has entered into this world. All those things were just a shadow of the real, and the real has come, and now Jesus is the focus of worship. Jesus confuses those who question him because they're not prepared for the true Messiah. They're looking for a political figure, a president, an emperor that would change the way the Jews related to this world that would set them free from the bondage, not only of the Egyptians, not only of the Babylonians, but now of the Roman Empire, where they could be free again to have their own country, their own way of life, apart from the intrusion of these secular people. They were looking for a political Messiah. They weren't looking for the Word made flesh and the Word dwelling among us. And now that flesh is joined to the church. And there Christ is made total again. Both the body of Christ as we, the church, the people of God, and Christ as the head. This begins with Jesus and the temple. And the church now represents both the word of God as well as the temple of God, the body of Christ. Think what this means for the work that we have to do and what this means for the work that we represent. If we see ourselves representing Christ, we must think about the church and what we are supposed to be. How do we represent that? Um, our church is actually a part, is part of the Presbyterian Church in America, but it's also part of a, a church planting um, organization called Mission Anna, uh, Mission Anabino. And Anabino comes from the Greek word, uh, word um, about Christ's ascension. So to think about the work that we have is, is not just about the work of Christ on earth. It's not just about the work of Christ in his death. It's not just about the work of Christ in his resurrection. But it's about the work of Christ in the totality of those things, as well as the work of Christ in his ascension. Because he ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father. 
and he has equipped the church to be his body by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has ascended and now leaves us as his voice and as his body. So those questions that I asked earlier, yes, how we worship matters. How we live matters. The grace and truth we proclaim and we show through this world matters. Who we are are people who are a temple are the temple of God and the word of God representing him to the world. This means we are his mouth and his hands and his feet of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Suffield, to East Granby, to Windsor Locks, to this area, and as we support missionaries globally to the world. And this is true because from the vantage point of Satan, It could be said that the healthy, gospel-centered, apostolic church is his most dangerous threat. Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 16 to Peter? He says, I tell you, Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then Screwtape Letters, which is a book, if you're not familiar with it, uh, a book written by C.S. Lewis, where he... um, It's a strange book, I'll tell you that. So Screwtape Letters is a, a senior demon in his advice letters to an underling demon. And basically, how can you get this person to not believe in Jesus? So the whole book is this dialogue, in a sense, between the senior demon and his underling, um, Wormwood. He says, my dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient, this young Christian being tempted... So it's kind of it's an allegory, somewhat of an allegory, has continued to attend one church, and only one, and one only since he was converted, and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what are, uh, what you are about? Why I have no report on these causes of his fidelity to the parish. Do you now realize that? Um, how, do you now realize how useless it is due to indifference? Um, that it's a very bad thing. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur. That, kind of, that hand motion goes with connoisseur um, <laughs> pretty well. Connoisseur of churches. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now, it's in, so I don't know if you can imagine being a Christian. C.S. Lewis was a Christian. Um, although I don't agree with everything that he believed and, and wrote and said. Um, but putting yourself in the mind of a demon and writing those things back and forth and thinking, what would a demon have to do to get me to basically deconvert? 
And so one of the things he wrote was the one, what I just read, that he would be so wholly unsatisfied with the, being faithful at one body that he would just never actually be part of a body. It's kind of church hop from here to there to there, kind of being a kind of sewer, taking in maybe the best speakers at one church, the best musicians at another, the best community at another. And actually, when I was pastoring in Hartford, um, we, um, right, we tried to um, have a biblically faithful worship gathering on Sunday mornings, but we also, and as we, I pray that we do here, have deep community, deep communal relationships with one another throughout the week. Um, in, in, the early, in the early stages, we had a number of people that were part of the house church um, come and worship with us on Sunday mornings, but they refused to get plugged into the life of the church throughout the week and the community that we were trying to, be, um, trying to build, a family of God, a household of God that we were trying to build together. And so I sat down with one of the, the main leaders of this house church, um, and he said to me, I don't want to be a consumer Christian, but I re- and the, the irony was so lost. And then he said, but we really just want to come on Sundays. I said, you are a consumer Christian. You are picking and choosing the goods and services of the, ch- of the church that you want and just using them for that, right? Like as if, um, well, I go to Home Depot for these appliances, but I go to this other hardware store for their nails because they're just the best nails. And you pick and choose which one you want. And, they're take- and we, we can easily treat the church that way. When it comes down to it, when the church um, believes the true gospel, not only in what is preached and proclaimed and taught, but in the way that um, people live within the body, um, that is a good church to be a part of. That is the true church, where not only do we preach the gospel of reconciliation, but that we actually don't run from each other, and we actually reconcile with one another. It's so easy to leave. It's so hard to stay. And I think it's, that's something that's, I don't know if you look at, if your grandparents were Christians, um, like Kelly's grandparents have been at the same First Presbyterian Church of Tonawanda, New York for at least 50 years. 80? I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're 90-something now. Um, and, and their health is, is, is waning, but they were faithful to the same church for their entire lives. And yet I, I find often that we don't see the body of Christ as this family, this household of God. We see it as a place where, mm, I can, this is good for now, but if something better comes along, I'm going to move along. As if, we're just, as if the body is just something to be used to get to the next level. Like it's Scientology or something. I had a, um, we don't want to be a people that run from one another, that when there's sin that we fight and we reconcile and we love one another enough to stay and do that. When I was, um, I had this couple one time um, come and visit for a few weeks and say, well, let's, let's get together and talk and where are you guys coming from? And they were coming from a large church across the river and I asked them, well, why are you guys leaving there? And they said they had an issue with another member um, in, this, in their small group, and it was really tough, and they were just, so they didn't, they just didn't want to deal with it anymore, and so they came to Redeemer Hill Church. 
And, uh, and I said, you know, we're, we're happy to have you, but you need to go back and talk to a pastor at your church and sit down and deal with this because we are not a people that run from one another. We're a people that stay and fight for the gospel of reconciliation, and it's hard. But when we do that, we are actually representing Christ to the world, and we're saying we're different than the world that we live in. Christ didn't run. He stayed and he fought. Not with his fists, but with his body and blood. was taken and beaten and bruised, and he died for us. And he says to us, we need not fear, because he is with us that we proclaim his word and that we are his temple presence and that he has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he has called us to do. And he is here with us right now. And he says the gates of hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ. And that is good, wonderful, precious news. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that is true, that we should be a grace-filled, truth-filled temple of Jesus Christ, that we proclaim the word of Jesus Christ as just as we are the body of Jesus Christ. Help us as we are a small church, a new church that is desiring to grow and be a light into the world, and by your grace, a light into the nations. Let us start small. Let us be a light to one another and a light to Suffield and the surrounding areas. That in our worship together, it might be true and good and right. And that when we go back to our homes, our homes might be little outposts of the kingdom of heaven. Where we speak differently, we live differently, and we represent the king. And we represent the body of Christ. Remind us that when we fail, because we will, because we will sin against one another and our neighbors, that we fight to reconcile, to redeem, and to forgive, to offer grace and mercy and truth. We pray all this in your name. Amen.